But if we sort of drag our utilitarian productive values in which I hit the accelerator and render things into usable products, not necessarily, uh, I think that that's a wrong thing to do in and of itself. But if we get into the habit where that's the only relationship we can have to the natural world, then what happens is, I think for Lewis, is that we obliterate the possibility of having any sort of iconic interaction with it, any sort of symbolic interaction with it. And what's wrong with that? Well, that means that sort of inner groaning, that what, what he calls for Merlin and that hideous strength, the inner wound. You won't even have a chance to let it ache. You won't even have a chance for those sort of Christ-haunted, God-haunted, eternal desires to even open up because you'll be living the, your life on the periphery of your psychology in this sort of mechanized, utilitarianized, what do I need to do now? Hit the accelerator. What do I need to do now? What next? What next? What next? You won't even have the opportunity to have these types of inner groanings, what Augustine calls um, an inquietum core, the restless heart. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. One of my favorite figures in recent history is C.S. Lewis. I assume that for many of our listeners, C.S. Lewis is somewhat of a household name, but I also imagine that the C.S. Lewis you know is one well, in popular uh, evangelical circles, it's a C.S. Lewis that often is very quotable, um, a C.S. Lewis that's known for, say, the Chronicles of Narnia. But uh, I think there's actually another side of C.S. Lewis, uh, a side to Lewis that, uh, dare I say, is at the very heart of who he was as a professor, uh, as a thinker, uh, as an intellectual and I think this side of C.S. Lewis actually gives us uh, not just an insight into his works of fiction and nonfiction, but I think that this side of C.S. Lewis, it does more than that. It actually explains why it is that so many are so attracted to Lewis, find him so magnetic in so many different ways. What am I referring to? Well, C.S. Lewis was, and by his own confession, C.S. Lewis was very much a medieval man with a medieval mind who had spent his entire life, really, teaching students the medieval world. And this was so uh, important to, to Lewis, and even, I think I could say, refreshing for Lewis, because Lewis was not living in the medieval world. He was living in a very modern world, and that concerned him at times. It even troubled him as he saw the significant, maybe even massive contrast between the medieval world and its view of God and creation and the universe and the modern world in which he was starting to see the core pillars uh, of, of a Christian perspective on God and the world slowly but surely disappear into the background. Well, it's for this reason that I could not be more excited to talk about the medieval Lewis 
that explains why we love C.S. Lewis so much to this day. And I have asked uh, none other than Jason Baxter to come on the Credo podcast and to give us insight into C.S. Lewis that we often miss, but insight that is actually essential to interpreting Lewis the right way. Uh, Jason Baxter, uh, you may know him from many of his books. In fact, uh, he is the author of An Introduction to Christian Mysticism. He's also the author of uh, A Beginner's Guide to Dante's Divine Comedy, a book that will help you in many ways understand Dante. And he's also the author of The Medieval Mind of C.S. Lewis, How Great Books Shaped a Great Mind uh, with IVP Academic. In the this fall, actually, he's going to be teaching in the PLS program at Notre Dame. And uh, I just have to say, I am thrilled to have him on the Credo Podcast because he's not just an expert in C.S. Lewis, but he also teaches and has taught for many years now on individuals like philosophers like Plato and poets like Dante. And I think he's the right person to introduce us to medieval and Renaissance ideas and explain to us, which sometimes this is so foreign to us, but explain to us why it is that Lewis was so fixated on on these medieval and Renaissance ideas of beauty. Jason, uh, it's a real privilege to have you on the Credo Podcast. Thank you so much. Very, very grateful for the invitation. Now, Jason, I, I just have to say, be, because uh, you know, you you've been swimming in this world of C.S. Lewis and have been studying his thought for so long, oftentimes in the popular imagination, C.S. Lewis, he gets picked up for all kinds of reasons in the Christian world, right? He is very quotable. He is known for his, his Narnia, the, the world of Narnia that he creates. Uh, he's also known among the masses for his books like uh, Mere Christianity or Screwtape Letters. However, I, I often find there's something uh, a bit ironic, if I could use that word, ironic, because oftentimes when Christians pick up C.S. Lewis, they are drawn to him, and they don't know why. Um, they're drawn to, to the type of world he paints, his understanding of God and creation. They find it very enchanting. But they're not entirely sure why, and I sometimes just want to jump up and yell <laughs> because I think the answer is that Lewis is very much a medieval mind with, with, with medieval thoughts uh, in terms of God and the universe and creation, and that in many ways is so foreign but also so attractive in light of the modern world that we live in. There's this famous uh, statement by Lewis where he talks about the task of the modern educator, and he basically says it's not to cut down the jungles, and by that jungle, I think he means the pre-modern era, but it's to irrigate the desert, which I think he considers uh, his own modern period. And so he saw himself that way, which raises the question, Jason, who who was Lewis? And And maybe you can help us just at the start of the podcast what is Lewis teaching, and, and where is he teaching, and, and why is it that Lewis is spending his life in medieval thought? That's right. For most of his life, he's an Oxford don, right? He's, he's one of these sort of like bachelor types at, uh, at Maudlin College, and he meets in tutorials with individual students and helps them write research papers, and he gives big, giant lectures um, on, as I jokingly call it in the book, on scintillating titles like a prolegomenon to 
medieval studies or something like that, right? Mm. And so he's he's very much concerned with the technical details. He's read almost everything. Wow. I mean, the 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 claim, and I, I don't remember where it is, is that he read everything in this beautiful old reading room in in the Oxford Bodley Library called the Duke Humphreys Library. And I don't know how many books there are in there, but I don't know, maybe like three, three or 4,000. But he's just, he's absolutely voracious, mm. but he's concerned with the details. He's concerned with sound laws. He's concerned with the great vowel shift. He's concerned with linguistics. He's concerned with uh, pre-modern uh, medieval cosmology and what influences that has on psychology of the medieval era. And I think the other, you know, extraordinary thing is that he has access to old books. I mean, really weird books like uh, Romain de la Rose of Jean de Mun and Bernard Silvestre's Cosmographia and Alan of Lille's, uh, you know, De Plong to Nature. He has access to these books, which we now have access to. They're in good modern editions. They're in good translations, facing page translations, if you want them. But Lewis was sitting around reading all this stuff, either in old 19th century editions, pre-translated, or in some cases, maybe even manuscripts. And so his access to stuff, he's, he's, he's an incredible, he's incredibly concerned with the, with the daily details of these texts. And I think you're right. That comes as a, as a great concern. It's not a surprise. It's not a surprise to Lewis's early 20th century Oxford scholars. They know what they're in for. But I think for us in the contemporary Christian world, to know that Lewis spent so much time doing such but we will consider, you know, obsession with minutia, that comes as a big shock to us. Yeah. And one of the claims of the book is that Lewis was successful as the writer we love, not despite his day job, but because of it. Mm. And that's, I think that's the kind of, you know, fun, provocative claim of the book. Yeah. But how on earth does uh, an expert in, you know, um, <laughs> Anglo-Saxon and and Middle English translations of Boethius yeah. get onto your coffee table in your living room. <laughs> so you mentioned Boethius, and this is a perfect transition. Boethius, some have called him, you know, the first, the first of the medievals. And Boethius is, yeah. I mean, we, we don't have time to go into his life. I mean, this would be a whole nother uh, really fun podcast, but Boethius is, is killed. I mean, he's, he's put to death in the end. Um, and, but before yeah. he dies, he writes uh, the consolation of uh, philosophy. And I think it's important to mention Lewis's uh, love for Boethius. I think we can put it that strongly. Um, yes. because oh, yeah. in his mind, apprenticeship. yeah, definitely sort of master apprentice relationship. This is so fascinating, right? Because at one point he says un until about 200 years ago, it would, I think have been hard to find an educated man in any European country who did not love Boethius and the consolation of philosophy to acquire a taste for it is yes. almost to become naturalized in the Middle Ages. Now, this is yes. so so important, right? Because Boethius, uh, I mean, there's a lot we could say about him, but one thing that we could say in terms of contributions is that Boethius is trying his best to save 
the classical we pagan world and and, and uh, thought and philosophy and ideas that were so basic, so basic to just a a, a right outlook to God and the world and the cosmos. But he's trying to save it from the the barbarians of his day. Now, correct me if I'm wrong here, but are we right to say that in part Lewis puts himself under this apprenticeship because he sees himself doing something or at least wanting to do something similar to Boethius in his own day? Absolutely. Yes, I call him the British Boethius in the book. And I think the similarities are are, are fascinating. So, I mean, just a, a little sort of background story. I went to Boethius for the first time and read him with an, I began with enthusiasm mm. because of Lewis. I thought, all right, here, here is an author that my author loved. Yeah. Let's see what he's got. And I was very disappointed in when I actually started reading Boethius. It wasn't, it, it, it's difficult to follow. There's this kind of strangeness to it. Well, you know, surprise, surprise, it's a medieval <laughs> text. And I spent my career um, trying to rehabilitate old text yeah. like Boethius, as well as, you know, Dante or some of these other sort of strange texts. But I think Lewis felt the exact same way. And I think by taking some of the best insights of Boethius and rewriting them in these imaginative, uh, fictionalized contexts, in some ways, Lewis can save Boethius from, from just having suffered the, the centuries of AIDS that have just inevitably made it sort of strange. Mm. But I think that the main, the main similarities are fascinating, that Boethius was living in the early 6th century at a time in which the handles of, uh, of Italian government, of Rome, of the, what was left of the Empire of Rome, were being taken over by the Ostrogothic Theodoric. And thus, Boethius was this, was this you know, bilingual figure who knew his Greek, who knew his Latin, had access to the whole philosophical tradition, and had these extraordinary intellectual ambitions, mm-hmm. in which he was going to translate all of Plato and all of Aristotle into Latin, and then he was going to write a treatise on how these two masters um, were, are, can be integrated. And then he was going to show, don't we wish that he had accomplished this? Then he was going to show how all the liberal arts could be integrated into a Christian theological perspective of life. Wow. And he wasn't able to do, he was able to do about a tenth of that. He translates, yeah. I think, what, two or three treatises by Aristotle and never gets to his Plato because he was arrested upon suspicion of being uh, in treacherous relationship with the Byzantine Empire, even though he himself was a scholar of Greek and not necessarily a spy, and was sent to house arrest and then executed in a brutal fashion. Mm. He has a couple of years, though, um, in house arrest in which he writes this consolation of philosophy. And so I think Lewis read that and saw this, this figure who's under duress, he doesn't have the luxury of making these surgical, precise delineations between Stoicism and Neoplatonism and late period Aristotelianism. He doesn't have the luxury to do that. He just has to save as much as he can from the ancient past, yeah. having already run out of time. And thus he seeks for a sense of unity. What did, what did Seneca and Virgil and Homer and Plato and Aristotle in general all have in common. Yeah. If that's starting to sound like Lewis's use of the word mere, right? As in mere Christianity or mere pre-modernity or a mere antiquity, 
then I think he's beginning to, you know, we're beginning to see how the, the influence of Boethius. Lewis himself, in a way, had sort of, quote unquote, run out of time. The West had run out of time. It didn't have, it doesn't, we don't have the luxury to make these surgical distinctions between all these different eras, but we're just trying to say it as much as we can before it's completely lost. So that's at least one comparison. And then Lewis, more often than not, this is a telling metaphor, referred to his generation as a new age of barbarism. Mm. McIntyre says the same thing, doesn't he? But a new age of barbarism in which he said, I think we have a new proletarian barbarism. Um, that is, you know, a kind of a, a bad democracy, right? Or a sort of, you know, a demagoguery democracy in which we have a new barbarism in which we're more content with ourselves than any generation of aristocrats in the previous, in previous ages have been. Wow. So I think when you put those things together, this is my argument, that we live in a new age of barbarism. And to a certain extent, because of that, we've run out of the luxury of having uh, all kinds of time to, to make all of our scholarly distinctions. We're just, we're, you know, we're, we're in a, Lewis, you know, seemingly thinks, right? We're in a burning museum, right? Oh. The fire alarm has been pulled. You can grab three or four paintings on your way out to stay. You don't have the luxury of the sort of connoisseurship to ask if you want the Tiepolo or the Tintoretto. You're just grabbing <laughs> stuff off the wall. And that's when Lewis, you know, that's when Lewis says things like, um, you know, we've got to, like, we've just got to, we've got to make, we've got to make people good pagans yeah. before we can render them Christian again. He says yeah. this to a, a group of, uh, of apologists, right? We've got to make them good pagans. I think in some sense, that's, that's what he's thinking of, this very sort of Boethian approach uh, in which I put Virgil and Seneca and, you know, for, for Lewis, all the way up to Dante and Aquinas and maybe even all the way up to, to William Wordsworth, right, into the 19th century and John Milton and Spencer get thrown in there as well. Um, and at some points, even jokingly, you know, tosses in Gilgamesh. Mm. So something like 2000 BC to 1800 AD, and this is so the term I coined to describe this aspect of Lewis's mind is the long Middle Ages, right. which goes something like from Akkadian culture, Babylonian culture in, in ancient archaic ages, right? And Egyptians and runs all the way up to the very early days of Romanticism in the early 1800s, sort of the age before our machines be, started to become our daily neighbors. And thus, according to Lewis, began to change our daily experience as well as our expectations of how the world works, what we want, what a human being is, and all those types of things. But then for Lewis, that's the long Middle Ages that he was trying to say, analogous to what Boethius was trying to say. One of the things you just said, uh, I, I, I just love this statement. And, and it's a quote, uh, you mentioned it, but it's a quote from uh, Lewis himself, right? It's from one of his essays when he says, uh, and I think he's, he's not just thinking of, oh, some, someday someone will have to do this. I think he's thinking of himself and, and his own task as an educator. He, he wondered if we shall not have to reconvert men to real paganism as a preliminary to converting them to Christianity. Now, that may yeah. sound uh, off-putting to some today. Like, well, why in the world would we uh, have anything to do with ancient classical thought uh, and, and these non-Christian thinkers? Uh, why would we be associated with them? But Lewis was convinced that in light of modernity and the modern world, 
in which he felt that uh, the, the basic ideas of, of a Christian understanding of God and the world were slipping away. Lewis seems to think that actually reconverting, uh, in a sense, reconverting to a real type of paganism, uh, and by that I think he means, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he, here he's referring to all those that, that you listed, right? Everyone from, from a Plato to a Dante. Yes. If we don't understand the mere in their mere Christianity, if we don't regain those basic building blocks of just the cosmos, then we have no chance of helping the modern man actually introduce the modern man to Christianity in the first place. And so this, this is, uh, I, I think this is where Lewis is provocative in the best sense of the word, because as he is approaching uh, the modern period. In fact, he, he says this at one point where he talks about how what he's talking about reading books. And he says, if you, if you only read books in your world, in your modern world, in your own tradition, uh, you're trapped. And uh, he even goes so far to say you're trapped in fear. You're, you're, you, you're going to, to lack empathy. You're, you're, your mind is going to remain narrow. And I think he even goes beyond that at one point to say, you may even be sucked into a modern view of the cosmos, which is completely, you know, to put it as C.S. Lewis would, is completely missing all the magic of a medieval view yeah. of the cosmos. So, so that brings me to the big question, right? You've really set this up well. Yeah. Lewis is this British Boethius. He's the Boethius of his own day. And for that reason, he, he's trying to popularize, even save these remnants of, of classical Christian thought. Uh, and, and in doing so, really the foundation of Christianity itself in light of his modern world. But that being the case, why why is it that uh, Lewis is seeing this uh, major difference? And what is this major difference between the medieval view of the cosmos, uh, in, including its view of God, and the modern one that Lewis yeah. is living in? What's the difference there? Yes, this is the million-dollar question, isn't it? The difference is... I think, in essence, between a mechanistic approach to the universe and human beings versus, I think, what you could call organic, or I would probably even prefer um, an iconic approach. Hmm. And I think the best way to do that is to, is to think about what Lewis says in his essay, Transposition. I think in his sermon, Transposition. Transposition is definitely one of my, uh, my one of the, you know favorite sermons, favorite you know nonfiction that Lewis wrote. But in that in that sermon, Lewis says, "Imagine a time before recorded music, in which if you go to a big symphony, say a Beethoven's Ninth Symphony or a Mahler Symphony or something like that, and you hear one of these sort of gargantuan orchestras and all the different types of sounds, but you go home and want to hear it again." you have to get a score for it, a transposition, a transliteration for it, for the piano. And maybe you sit down, say, with a, with, with a friend and play, you know, the piece for four hands. But while you're doing it, sometimes the notes you're playing represent flutes, and sometimes they represent violins, and sometimes they even represent kettle drums. In other words, it's a limited, smaller language in which this larger, more powerful language, in this case of the orchestra, is doing its best to fit into this sort of compressed, limited language of space. Mm. Lewis says that we actually have to, if we want to understand the Middle Ages, we have to think of the universe being like that. 
that the universe in its sort of visible temporal range is doing what Boethius says and what Plato says. It's best to represent eternity by means of time. They say that time imitates eternity. And so in the Middle Ages, if you sense a sort of, a, you know, a sense of supersaturation of a sort of divine presence, either through beauty or through the sort of sense of moral uplift, it's not a surprise. Whereas in the modern age, as Lewis put it, we tend to think of the world as lumps of passive, inert matter in which the sense of meaning, our own agency, is in our own minds, in our own souls. But the world out there is just a sense of colliding uh, chemical reactions and atoms. Thus, for us, we tend to think of everything out there as being a great type of machine just waiting for me to impose my will on it. But for our pre-modern ancestors, it was an icon, mm. a sense of sort of a moral uplift, an aesthetic uplift, trying to, to pull us up to, to higher invisible spiritual realities. And that, for Lewis, is the extraordinary difference, which has all kinds of interesting psychological consequences, linguistic consequences, and ethical consequences. Yeah. Yeah, there's this one point, and I believe it's the Allegory of Love by C.S. Lewis, where he, he touches on this, right? And he says at one point, the attempt to read that something else through its sensible imitations to see the archetype in the copy is what I mean by symbolism or sacramentalism. And then he goes on to say symbolism comes to us from Greece. It makes its first effective appearance in European thought with the dialogues of Plato. The sun is the copy of the good. Time is a moving image of eternity. Yes. And then he says this fast is such That's a right. fascinating line. He brings us right back to Boethius. He says, all visible things exist just insofar as they succeed in imitating the form. So this is, this is uh, maybe some might call this Lewis's Christian yeah. Platonism coming through. And then he says, this is right. the diffuse right. Platonism or Neoplatonism if, there's a, if there is a difference. And that, I, I, I think even that phrase there, he's picking up on what you mentioned, right? That, that the mere part, right? He doesn't have time. He, he wants to see what is the connection here. And yes. in this sense, their view of the cosmos is more or right. less the same. He says, this is the diffuse Platonism or yes. Neoplatonism if there's a difference of Augustine the, or um, Pseudo-Dionysius. And then he goes on to even mention at the That's end, right. the divine popularizer. Boethius. <laughs> so this yes, is that's right. I think I I I think that this is you know you said a minute ago this is the million dollar question. I couldn't agree with you more because yes. I think as Christians today we love to go to C.S. Lewis and we like to pick out kind of on the surface uh, some of his statements about Christianity and we're so intrigued by them and they seem so applicable today and so refreshing. And as you mentioned, in this modern machine-like approach to the world that we live in, but I don't know that we always realize where Lewis is, is he's getting this from. This is coming out of uh, his uh, very Platonic, uh, classical, medieval, uh, Boethian view of the universe. Now, right. Jason, I mean, I guess yes. if I can tease this out a little bit more, I, I guess what I want to ask you is is you have come across Lewis like this? Um, I mean, Lewis 
Lewis is such a loving soul, but at the same time, when he is acting, when he puts on his his professor coat, you know, of, of medieval thought and literature, um, he's also very upset at times because I mean, there's this right, there's this uh, famous anecdote where Lewis. He just he has the, he doesn't like cars, uh, and that can sound out of context. It yeah. can sound like, "Oh, Lewis, come on, you know, like you're just being old and grumpy." Right. But it seems to be the case that what you just said is actually behind the scenes. That Lewis doesn't just see it as a car. Uh, he sees this as right. If I get in that yeah. car, then I don't get the opportunity to walk amidst the trees and the flowers. And see all these shadows and types of the real beauty, the real goodness, the real truth uh, that eventually, right. as he became a Christian, he knew to be, well, this is God himself. So explain this to, to some of our yeah, listeners. Yeah, it reminds me of this cool passage in Thomas Merton, in which Burton says that modern man goes into primitive and beautiful spots of forest or, or shores, brings his noise. The noise of his instruments and pollutes it. Mm. I know everyone's been to a uh, to a, a lovely beach in which <laughs> everyone's music is so loud that you you can't even hear the waves. Yeah, right. Or we we go into a forest, but we bring our machinery with us, right? Mm. We bring our our engines and our motors and so forth. I think Lewis, what bugged Lewis about that is. And, and this is where we're beginning to get some of those consequences. If you have a view of the world as the mechanization of the of the world picture, sort of post scientific revolution, or if you have this older symbolic iconic view of the world, these are some of the ethical consequences, right? So if we sort of drag our utilitarian productive values in which I hit the accelerator and render things into usable products, not necessarily, uh, I think that that's a wrong thing to do in and of itself. But if we get into the habit where that's the only relationship we can have to the natural world, mm. then what happens is, I think for Lewis, is that we obliterate the possibility of having any sort of iconic interaction with it, yeah. any sort of symbolic interaction with it. And what's wrong with that? Well, that means that sort of inner groaning, that what, what he calls for Merlin and that hideous strength, the inner wound. You won't even have a chance to let it ache. You won't even have a chance for those sort of Christ-haunted, God-haunted, eternal desires to even open up because you'll be living the, your life on the periphery of your psychology in this sort of mechanized, utilitarianized, what do I need to do now? Hit the accelerator. What do I need to do now? What next? What next? What next? You won't even have the opportunity to have these types of inner groanings, what Augustine calls um, an inquietum cor, the restless heart. Yeah. Right. And I think that for Lewis, our, our own restlessness, our own Christ haunted, God pierced soul in which we experience longings, which cannot be entirely satisfied, even by the goods of this world. In some sense, that's a good type of holy restlessness for Lewis and encountering the world in its, if I can use a term, iconicity mm. could potentially awaken those types of uh, of deep yearnings and deep longings even in my own soul and anyway so yes the car <laughs> not <laughs> you know not in combustion you know combustion engines not inherently evil but they pose 
when they become a totalizing way of interacting with the world, our machines, our technologies become a type of peril, a psychological peril mm. in which I could create a space. And, you know, does this sound like screw tape letters, right? In which I could create a space in which I would never have sufficient quiet to tend to that deep whispering voice. And thus, I guess you could say in a way, might not ever be able to pray. When I chiefly interact with the world in terms of machines, then lo and behold, the world looks more like a machine. Yeah. But then I also, in some ways, start to think of myself as a machine or in our day, a computer in which my own kind of production value is the most important thing that happens. Yeah. That I see myself as a, as a production function, which has to accelerate. And thus, I live my life on the periphery of my psychology. And what's wrong with that is these, these inner, this inner restlessness, this mm. inquietum core, this restless heart, or these, this inner ache, as Lewis called it, right? Or this sort of still and whispering voice is suffocated by my concerns on, on my periphery. And thus, if we lose an iconic view of the world, it has these, it has these potentially perilous psychological and ethical consequences of arguably what is the best part of me, the prayerful, beauty, loving interiority, interiority of me, which when it sees something, wants just to stare at it with loving amazement, a kind of contemplative gaze, seems strange and out of place in modernity. Mm. But it didn't seem strange and out of place to our pre-modern ancestors. And I think that's at least one of the reasons that Lewis thinks we need to rehabilitate their view of the world, yeah. because it has something precious, which we are, especially even since Lewis, but even in his own day, which we're running the risk of losing. It's, I guess you could say an extinct species of psychological experience, right? Mm. Contemplation is on the endangered list. Yeah. You know, it, the way you've put it there, uh, it, it makes me realize that if Lewis saw this in his day, I can't imagine what he would think of, of 2022, right? Because we, I, I mean, the technology that he was experiencing in his day, and like you said, it's not that there's something evil about technology in and of itself. It's the disenchanting effect right. it has when it, it, it almost sucks out any type of uh, longing, as Augustine put it, right? That, that longing to know God uh, or, or just a, a longing for the transcendent, to see the beauty yeah. in this world and then to be pulled up to something transcendent. If Lewis saw that in our day, I, I, think, I think that his concern in our day, if he would have lived this long, well, his words proved to be in, entirely prophetic. You know, I really like how you've put it because right, yes. the, the uh, imagery of a machine, right, as opposed to a symphony, that yeah. really captures what, how right. Lewis sees the difference, right? There, the, the, and this, this yes. may explain why he's so occupied with this medieval world that he's living in, even down yeah. to you know, the specifics of, of uh, punctuation and, and grammar, because uh, he finds that, well, at least with this medieval world, it's an enchanting age. Um, there's there's a, um, a contemplation that takes place in these medieval cathedrals in which, at the very least, have an understanding of God's transcendence 
And um, Lewis seems to be quite bothered that, uh, well, as you put it at one point, uh, and I think, I think he's saying this in one of his essays called The Empty Universe, where he says there's just this uh, relentless process today of disenchantment. And he talks about it That's right. as if he can feel it uh, in, in his very bones. It's, it's almost like a, a spiritual cancer, this, this disenchanting of the universe or this uh, demystifying of the human even the human body. And so for Lewis, it's, it's not, it's even physical as, as he is experiencing the world, he he's feeling its effects in in just countless ways. I I guess that leaves me wondering, I mean, we're so immersed, aren't we? We're so immersed in the modern or even the postmodern world that this might be a bit offensive to some people because it's kind of confronting, not just the world out there, but it's confronting ourselves. But I think that if we're humble enough to go along on this ride with you, right, and to listen to Lewis, I mean, when we come to like one of his essays, like The Abolition of Man, right, let's just take that one, for example. Uh, Lewis, he at one point, he's quite bold in the way he confronts us. Uh, this is more in the context of education, uh, and he's concerned about divorcing the, the mind and the heart. But he asks, you know, are we men without chess? Um, where we're still expecting right. virtue in this modern world of machinery that, but, but, but why? Uh, so, so maybe you could take us to Lewis at this yes. point too, because um, Lewis at this point is, is going to take us aside and give us a, a pretty stern admonition. So why is that? Yes. I think he's, he's in part afraid of our inherent modern tendency of what he, as you know, often is quoted, jokingly calls chronological snobbery, mm. right? You know, having a sort of disdain and contempt for our ancestors just because they're dead now, yeah. right? Um, you know, and, 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 but, you know, but for Lewis too, that, I mean, that's explicable within the mechanistic paradigm. I mean, everyone knows. That when the iPhone 15 comes out, it's going to be better than your old iPhone 13, right? <laughs> like our sort of, we're, we're, we're conditioned to machines, like every new generation of machine improves upon its predecessor. Mm. And that has become so obvious to us because that's become our daily experience. Yeah. We spend more time around machines than we do around the natural. And thus that's influenced our deep psychological paradigms. And so we've come to even think about human beings in that way as well as generations and our ancestors that, um, I mean, someone says, and I hope someone will, will, will know where this comes from and send me an email because I've forgotten where it comes from. But someone says that the the great way to, you know, summarize the difference between modernity and pre-modernity is, as someone put it, that our ancestors used to be envious of the ancients because they were closer to the golden age. Mm -hmm. Whereas we are now envious of our children's children because they will have more access to technologies. Right. If that's our if that's our sort of, you know, fundamental um, attitude, then this type of disdain, then, of course, we have contempt and disdain for our ancestors because they're just primitive versions of us. Mm. Right. We're where history has really been going. But of course, I think, you know, I think for any Christian listener with a sense of with a sense of piety, and that's the virtue that Aeneas or that Aeneas possesses as ascribed by Virgil. You have to listen patiently to your elders and to the ancients because they might have been closer to realities which we've grown distant from. And so I think um, 
I really, I really like Lewis's might be too strong to put it this way, but I'm going to just go ahead and take a shot. <laughs> I like Lewis's ecclesiology. Yeah. That is, I like his sort of understanding of Christianity as spread out through the ages. And that in some ways we, we need each other. And in some ways we, we really are more virtuous and more Christian on certain values and certain virtues in a way that I think in the fullness of time, other generations might look even at us and be, stupefied and wonder, mm. oh, I'm so glad you, you perceive that so clearly. But I think we can't forget that it's going to be that way for, uh, for other generations. I th- and we're going you know, to be ashamed yeah. <laughs> in the fullness of time about how we let some virtues completely get eclipsed and don't even value them, right? I mean, if you read any sort of old text, then you see these guys breathed and lived in a, in a, in a different atmosphere than we do. And so in some sense, we need them as, as you were referring earlier to Lewis's essay, learning in wartime, because they correct some of our blind spots. Mm. Right. And I think that's, that's partly just sort of inherent, the inherent process of being a human is that we're always getting better and we're always getting worse. And we're, because we're getting better, we tend to think that we're the only ones who have ever been good. But because we're getting worse, we need the wisdom of our ancestors, and we need to confront that honestly and reverently with a sense of piety in order to make sure that we don't lose access to realities which, which they felt and knew. I think that's what Lewis is. One of the neat themes that he's getting at in uh, Abolition of Man, mm. of a great sort of apologia, right? A great sort of apology for a type of education which has piety and reverence toward our ancestors. Yeah. You know, I, I think for our listeners, if, if they're doubting this at all, I would encourage them, just think about prayer. I mean, you mentioned this a minute ago, Jason, but uh, why is it that prayer is so difficult for us today? I think it comes back to what you just said. Um, if, if you don't understand this difference between pre-modern and modern, um, you may never understand why it is that you're struggling so much to just be in silence. I mean, when the psalmist says, be still and know that, that I am God, yeah. um, there's a sense in which the pre-moderns, that's, that is the moment in which they lived. And for us today, that seems impossible. Yes. It seems almost absurd. It seems completely uh, unsuccessful yes. and uh, ineffective. And it, well, that's, Can I give an example of that? Yeah, yeah, please do. Yeah, I was just, uh, last night uh, was uh, for, for us, uh, the 4th of July, uh, went to a cool fireworks show, <laughs> and the folks in front of me, um, not, nothing wrong with this, nothing wrong with this, recorded the whole fireworks show, 10 minutes on their phone. Yeah. <laughs> so the folks, they didn't see any of the fireworks show except on their screen. Yeah. Now, what are they going to do? They're going to go home and watch the show that they recorded on the screen? Yeah. Well, that's fine, but it means they never actually looked at the real thing. Mm. Um, I think in a way, the condition, you know, we've been sort of conditioned in modernity, right? In which we're always postponing that activation. We're always postponing that encounter with the real, right? And I think just for sort of what you're saying about in terms of prayer, right? In the sort of in busyness of my productivity, I'm like a factory that can be never turned off because I have to meet temporal deadlines, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right to say that our ancestors were wise in that way, that they were able to rest. Mm. They were able to be still 
I, and, and maybe a way to, another way to put it is they were able to be present. Um, they were able to sort of activate potential promises, whereas in some sense, we're always kind of, we're always kind of deferring real life to a later date. Yeah. So Jason, as we finish out the podcast, I think the most pressing question uh, for us today is how do we embody the medieval mind that Lewis so exemplified for us? You know, and I, and I think here, um, I love to hear what you say, because I think in our own century, it's not just about you know, reading Lewis's nonfiction, but he seems to embody this even in his, in the fiction that he's writing. Um, so, yeah. so it, 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 you see it come out in his essays. You know, we think, for example, the abolition of man, um, or we might think, you know, for, for those out there listening that are maybe more academic, uh, his book, the discarded image and introduction to medieval and Renaissance literature but we also see this come out in the worlds that he creates um, in, in Narnia, for right. example, so, uh, or even his space trilogy. Uh, so let me just turn this back to you, Jason, as we close and ask, how, how can we embody this type of medieval mind that Lewis believes is really going to save us from modernity or even post-modernity that we know now? And how do we take seriously Lewis's prophetic words uh, as we move to the future? I love the question. I think two things. One, I think the simplest thing would just be to do what Lewis tells us to do, that for every new book we read, we should read an old one. Mm. And then I think that'll help us kind of create this sense of Christian community, which extends beyond the mere couple of decades that we happen to live through. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I think one of the things that will happen with that, and I think this is, touches on uh, one of the aspects of your question, is we'll develop another type of power of reading, which our ancestors knew really well, mm. and which has become more difficult for us. Lewis called it, of course, in his, uh, his uh, essay, Meditations on a Toolshed. He liked to, to liken it to the difference between looking at that beam of light, which is suspended in the dust particles, and then orienting yourself so that your eye is directly along it. And you can see along that beam, and of course the beam disappears, and you see the sky whence it comes. In other words, looking along the beam as opposed to looking at it. And if you think about this as sort of modes of not just a reading, but modes of engaging in life, right? Is looking at information and looking along information. I think that as we read some of these old books, which arguably were chiefly preoccupied with looking along the beam, that is sort of looking prayerfully along these realities in a way that opens up the sense of longing and desire such that I can be transformed in the act of reading, I think that will be, per chance, one of the, one of the consequences. And then we'll be, we'll be getting more medieval as, uh, as Lewis would recommend it to us. We've been talking to Jason Baxter. Uh, he's the author of many books, uh, including A Beginner's Guide to Dante's Divine Comedy, as well as The Medieval Mind of C.S. Lewis, How Great Books Shape a Great Mind. I would encourage you to read uh, Jason Baxter yourself. And I think uh, in the spirit of C.S. Lewis, not only to read Lewis, 
Uh, but to go back and read uh, read a Dante, read a Boethius, read an Augustine, and so many others, uh, in, under, in order to understand the difference between the modern world in which we uh, still live and breathe and uh, the pre-modern world in which Lewis was, was so enamored with and found so many antidotes to uh, his own day and really ours. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.